The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Hey David, you ready for an international assassination plot? I'm definitely ready for a movie with a whole lot of smoking. How about chair fights, my man? You like chair fights? Because if you do, I got some good news for you. Todd, did you know that this is Peter Lorre's first English-speaking role? I do now. I'm ready for a note hidden in a shaving brush. I'm ready for some surveillance. I'm ready for some tapped phones. And exactly one more dead French skier than in the 1989's heartwarming Driving Miss Daisy. David! Are we here today to talk about the man who knew too much? Yes, we are. Shall we begin? Following an uncharacteristic pair of back-to-back floppy fluff films, Alfred Hitchcock avows that it's time for him to get back into his melodramatic wheelhouse. He delivers one of his many proto-spy films involving a man or a couple accidentally drawn into a shadowy world of foreign intrigue. He'll remake the movie in 1956 with a nearly identical plot, but a tremendously different flavor and style. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we're here to talk about spy movies. And why we'll discuss whether or not these qualify as actual spy movies. They're important films in the development of the genre, and as such, we're going to talk about them today on this episode of Spies Like Us. By the way, this movie's super named wrong. They should have just called it The Man Who Knew One Thing. That is... Yeah, that's very true. He does, in both of them, he pretty much just knows one thing. Uh, The title apparently uh, came from a a book of detective stories that Alfred Hitchcock just happened to have the rights to, and he just liked the title. And it is a good title. I think it's a great title. Speaking of the title, when we made our list of spy movies, uh, our our Excel spreadsheet that we're constantly adding and updating, um, when I alphabetized it, by 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 yeah when i when i sorted it by alphabetization it was really surprisingly to me it really jumped out like how many spy movies start with the word the yeah <laughs> it's like it's it's like a solid third of them you know you've got the day of the jackal the enemy within the fourth protocol the good shepherd the man who knew too much the jackal did I mention yeah, the got the perfect formula? The that that that. Right, yeah. The, some, <laughs> the something that something. But I think I think the like the reason for that is it's always like it's supposed to give the audience a feel that like they're being like let in on uh, a secret, something that happened, even if it didn't. It's and it's it's big enough to use the the so it's something specific, but. It's always like a vague word, like, uh, you know, the the falcon that flew in from China. Exactly, exactly. It gives it a sense of, like, I'm going to make up a word here, pivotality. Yeah. Like, that that this was some kind of moment where, like, things changed, and, uh, and, and the movie wants to tell the audience about this thing. Yeah. So there's, um... There's several movies that we considered uh, for this episode, several Hitchcock movies that kind of are 
all in the same, I don't know, kind of blob of like proto-spy movies. We looked at The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is 1934. We looked at The 39 Steps in 35. The Man Who Knew Too Much remake is in 56, and North by Northwest is in 1959. Why am I mentioning these four movies specifically? Well, if during our research, if you look at like what uh, serious film critics, which we're not, yeah. have, have to say, not at all. <laughs> you you frequently find the Thirty Nine Steps, which is uh, one of Hitchcock's uh, black and white uh, British period films, cited as possibly being the first spy movie, and even being like the first Bond movie. You find other people that say the nineteen fifty nine North by Northwest which might be Alfred Hitchcock's best movie ever, uh, as also being the proto prototype of the spy movie. And, David, what, what, what comes out really soon after 1959? Well, we get Dr. No, the first Bond film, which was pretty much like our first spy hero in 1962. I was really surprised during this research... I thought there were going to be. I thought we were going to find a lot more spies as heroes prior to James Bond. Yeah, that's super weird. Like, it, apparently, all these movies just made these spies look like these creepy weirdos that are just like peeping toms. You know, you know the the black fedora and the white fedora. You know, and 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 everybody's kind of like in this dark world. So there's no possible way that any of them could be good guys. They're all just like weirdos. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does feel like that. It does feel like the um, like the uh, movie makers of the pro pre Bond era don't understand that the audience might be able to identify with a spy, and so they throw in these everymen uh, into the spy world instead. And that's why I think we kind of call this the proto spy genre. We're going to talk a lot more about that at the end of this episode. But uh, between picking from these movies, honestly, I think we went with The Man Who Knew Too Much uh, because, well, it is it technically does predate The 39 Steps. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah. So the two films we are going to talk about, though, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, or as, too much. As, as David would retitle them, The Man Who Knew, like, one fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what was weird was like in '56, like the information wasn't as valuable as it was at '34. There was like a date and like a place in '34 and '56. It was like somebody's gonna be killed. Like, 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 like it was such a broad piece of information. Like, all right, uh, when, where, who? Like, yeah, I, I think we got a place. I think that was the most specific piece of information. We got like a lead. But I guess that helps more for, like, the mystery. I've loved Hitchcock for a long time. I'm not, like, a super fanboy. I haven't, like, seen all his films. A lot of them I haven't gone back to and to watch multiple times or anything. But uh, ever since I was first introduced to him by a high school teacher who uh, talked about the opening scene of Rear Window and just how much storytelling is is given to you, how much setup of like uh, who Jimmy Stewart is and why he's in a wheelchair 
is given to you in this long, like, wordless sequence where we're just panning around his room and just seeing some pictures and some magazines and other things, and it all tells a story. And ever since then, um, yeah, I've always, I've always really, really enjoyed Alfred Hitchcock stuff. It wasn't until much later that I found out about his uh, pre-Technicolor British period, and that was when I picked up that DVD that I mentioned before. Um, but I really enjoyed those those movies. It was the Thirty Nine Steps, uh, Young and Young and Strange. I think was the other one. How about you? What's your What's your uh, Where Where do you come in on this uh, from a Hitchcock angle? Well, I actually haven't seen very much Hitchcock in my uh, I guess older years. I mean, I'm not that old, I guess. But you know, I, I saw a lot. I saw a couple when I was a kid. So I don't really actually have. A whole lot of cinematic experiment experience. I mean, I took like a couple film classes at a junior college, and they always showed us these shots that were Hitchcock shots, and they were like, "Ah, look how amazing this is." But um, I mean, watching these films really made me appreciate who he was as a filmmaker and the impact he had on film. A, lo- a lot of those shots were like pretty, pretty cool. They really set a lot of the mood. To, you know, like you know, you could probably say a lot of things about the movies as a whole, but there's all these awesome camera angles that really, really set the mood for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's camera angles are, are, are legendary. And the, 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 the real legend goes that he never looked through the camera. Yeah. He would, he would set everything up and he would say, he would set everything up with such precision that he felt like it's impossible for you to not, you know, for the cameraman to not get this right. Yeah, yeah. Our remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much is 56. Right. North by Northwest is 1959. We're leading, we're tiptoeing right up to the edge of the Bond era. But notice again, when the first real spy hero, James Bond, comes onto the scene, he's not an American. No. He's very British. He's an ally. He's yeah. an ally, so we can consider yeah. him a good guy at that point, but mm-hmm. definitely not an American. At some point, we're going to probably see if we can find the first American spy in cinematic history. And maybe oh, talk yeah. That. Yeah. But let's, uh, let's, let's get into uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. 1934 version starts out in Switzerland. Uh, we start out uh, watching a skiing competition. Uh, a skier, Louis Bernard, almost uh, runs over a little girl's dog. And we have kind of a little laugh about it, uh, like a little kerfuffle with the, um, the girl's parents who are going to are our protagonists for the film. That is uh, Jill and Bob Lawrence, and their daughter's name is Betty. And um, we also, there's another guy that was kind of like uh, uh, in the almost accident uh, guy named Abbott, who we're going to find out is actually important to the movie, but we're going to talk about him later. After this, we go to a sharpshooting competition. And Jill is a marksman in this movie, and she narrowly loses a contest to a guy named Ramon, also, we're going to remember that name, uh, when Abbott's watch chimes just at the moment that she's 
about to take the shot, which uh, I think she should have been more angry about than she is, but she doesn't seem to to uh, have a problem with it. They just all laugh it off, and everyone goes to dinner. Uh, there's big uh, party at the chalet. Uh, everyone's in like tuxes and fancy dresses, and uh, Louis Bernard is dancing with Bob's wife when he gets shot. Just before he dies, he whispers to her that there's an important message in his hotel room and she needs to get it to the British consulate. She tells her husband that. He goes to the hotel room, finds the message. Now, we notice that Ramon, the other sharpshooter, also went straight to the hotel room uh, apparently trying to find something as well. Uh, but um, Bob gets there first. Uh, Ramon tries to, like, demands, like, give it to me. Um, so we're not sure exactly what Ramon knows at this point, because he just says, give it to me. Uh, but um, Bob is whisked off by the uh, hotel manager and the Swiss police. While they're being interrogated, someone passes Bob a note letting him know that his daughter's been kidnapped and that he needs to not say anything about anything. He manages to get this information to his wife uh, without letting the police know what's going on. And uh, they clam up. Oh, I should mention exactly what the note says. The message reads, WAPPING. That's W-A-P-P-I-N-G, apparently. We're, we'll find out later that's a district in London. And the note says, G. Barbour, make contact, A. Hall, March 21st. That's the first note, not the second note. Yes, I'm sorry, there are two notes. That's the note that Bob found in the hotel room. Hidden in a brush. Hidden in a brush. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as the... As the audience, we find out that it was Ramon who abducted Betty and the Lawrences head home. All in all, this is just a 15-minute sequence. It moves along pretty darn fast. And um, that's Switzerland. So, Dave, let's talk about uh, what's what's going on uh, like uh, behind, underneath the hood in Switzerland. Well, it looks like that our Louis Bernard wasn't just a skier, as we can tell as he's trying to pass the note to Mrs. Lawrence. Um, and we realize later that Abbott is kind of behind a lot of the assassination plot. So presumably Abbott was there recruiting Ramon as the shooter. Um, and Louis Bernard was there to intercept the information or as much information as possible about this assassination. So that's mainly, I guess, uh, what's going behind the scenes in Switzerland. Do we know, uh, do we actually know yet that there's an assassination plot? No, we don't. We just have the, the contents of the note. Yeah, okay. we just have the contents of the note. That's right. That's right. Uh, but I think... That's pretty much what's going on in Switzerland, is a recruitment that we'll later find out for an assassination plot. <laughs> right. Abbott's there to recruit uh, Ramon to be the marksman in uh, for, for the assassination of whoever. We'll find that out later. Um, 
Yeah. So what? Um, at first, it wasn't clear to me why. Why do we think there's a note? Anyways, do we think in that the, in the brush rate? Um, well, I mean, I I would say there's probably a couple different reasons. I mean, it's kind of weird that he would just have that kind of information laying around. Only it was it was actually hidden, so that's one thing. But why he didn't destroy it? probably tells us as the audience that he's either going to um, use it as a dead drop to pass the information over back into headquarters through someone else along the chain, or he's going to leave it there for, and the hotel might be the dead drop for, you know, uh, one of the cleaning people to pick up and bring, pass on to someone down the chain through headquarters. What's a dead drop, Dave? Oh, a dead drop is a place um, that is used to pass information without two people ever having to meet. <clears throat> and um, it's usually signaled when there is a dead drop available or there could be like a pre-planned, you know, uh, interval in which the dead drop, uh, the, the information is placed in a dead drop back and forth between two people but the point of it is is to disconnect two people's communication so that they can't they won't ever be seen together receiving information so it could be like in a bush somewhere at a park you know or like uh behind a statue somewhere in front of like a government building you know so it's, it's always going to be some kind of inconspicuous way place that uh you know uh, person A is going to leave a piece of information or an item for P person B to pick up later. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> I see, I mean, uh, I was thinking there were two possibilities of the, the author of the note. One was that maybe someone like a contact of Louis Bernard's passed that note to him. But that, uh, that doesn't hold up too well because any good spy which uh, Louis Bernard supposedly is, um, would just uh, memorize the information and, and eat the note, right? Yeah, right, right. So it's probably more likely that um, it's probably more likely that he wrote the note, and he doesn't want to be seen himself going to the British consul uh, because right. right because sometimes in especially in spy movies. Uh, when you see someone going to the the embassy or the consulate, uh, it, it I mean, obviously there's people going in and out of there all the time. But if you're like you know, you're watched, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, like if if Louis Bernard, for instance, if he is you know they're posing as a skier, like why does why in and someone was vaguely suspicious of him, um. Yeah, they might see him headed toward the embassy and say, hey, 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 something's going on here. So, yeah, why is the skier going to the embassy? Yeah. Sure. So uh, so what I'm thinking is maybe um, the, the you know, he hit it in his shaving brush, which uh, it, I guess it's not the hotel's shaving brush because hotels don't have shaving brushes with secret compartments in them. No, right. <laughs> So I guess not the last time I checked. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you know what? Actually, I've honestly never checked. Maybe maybe they all do. Maybe yeah, it's yeah. Thing. It's just like a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, uh, I don't know. Maybe he's going to accidentally, uh, when he leaves the next day, which he said he was going to, um, when he leaves the next day, he's either maybe going to accidentally leave the shaving brush behind, and maybe it's pre-planned that someone else has infiltrated the cleaning staff and is going to get the note from there to the British consul, or maybe he's going to put it in his luggage and kind of, I don't know, at the airport or seaport or whatever, however they got back and forth uh, in these days. I don't think they traveled much by air in 1934. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. So it isn't as far away as like Morocco, right? Yeah. Maybe someone else picks up his lug. He leaves his luggage at the seaport lobby or something. Someone else picks it up and they surreptitiously take it to the embassy. I guess they didn't have that rule like they do at the airports now. You know, don't leave your luggage suspiciously if you see luggage abandoned, report it immediately. <laughs> they didn't they didn't give a fuck back then. You know. <laughs> okay. So let's see. We're gonna find out later though that this does pertain to an SS an, an assassination plot. And the the plot is for Abbott to hire Ramon to shoot who? The head of state or some kind of high dignitary. I don't think we really find out exactly what their uh, title is, but it's it's a Frenchman, we're pretty sure, because... Uh, right. He's referred to later in the film, this is the assassination target, as Monsieur Roper. Uh, and the reason I can deduce that that's a French person is because uh, it's an Englishman who refers to him as Monsieur. If you're a French person and you say someone, uh, uh, what you call it, honorific, what I don't know what the word for Mr. Mrs. is, um, as Monsieur, then you know you're just being French. But if you're not French and you refer to someone as Monsieur, then I can deduce that the person you're referring to is French. Also, Roper is a name of French origin, turns out. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, we don't get a whole lot of information about his position. He's probably like some sort of diplomatic dignitary, some kind of something. Oh, we should have noticed. Oh, yeah, we need to note that uh, at the initial scene of the, the skiing accident, almost tragedy, whatever, Abbott and Louis Bernard appear to recognize each other. Yeah. So. Interesting. I guess it's just the small world of the spy trade. Everybody kind of knows everybody. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, you're not very good spies, if that's true, I guess. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I mean, you know, minus one, minus five spy points on Louis Bernard for being made. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. just uh, going on about his business and just partying with uh, and dancing around with another man's wife and yeah. being, being in a public location. Apparently, he's uh, he wasn't worried about getting shot, but he really should have been. Yeah, I know, right? Especially after he was noticed. <clears throat> like, I, I would think that he'd be a little bit more on his toes, but cinematically, I think we needed a, a comical moment, maybe. So yeah. let, me ex let me explain this real quick, because it's a nice little Hitchcock twist kind of thing here, where um, uh, 
So Louis Bernard is cheekily dancing with uh, Jill, and they're making fun of Bob. Um, and actually, it was kind of confusing at first. I couldn't tell, like, who am I supposed to be paying attention to in this scene? Uh, first of all, everyone kind of looks the same. Yeah. Um, except for uh, Abbott, who's played by Peter Lorre, very distinctive. And um, what Bob does in kind of like a little teasy revenge is he, he attaches a piece of string to uh, Louis's waistcoat button or something uh, so that, uh, you know, surreptitiously. So while they're dancing, they're slowly getting entangled by the string. And it's when Louis realizes that he, uh, you know, is tangled up in the string. That's the moment he gets caught. And, like, the cool Hitchcock thing is, like, he has that moment of realization that he's caught in the web. <laughs> I right? see. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very clever. Right. Very, very clever, Alfred. But one way or another, the, um, the Lawrence's uh, head to London. And that's where we're headed next. So our next scene, uh, yeah, is in London. It's the home of the Lawrences, and the British police are asking him about, asking Bob, about the whereabouts of his daughter. Um, he doesn't say anything, which, of course, I mean, he lies about it. He says she's, like, staying with an aunt in Paris or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they leave. But, it, but they do hint at, like, that they might know that she was kidnapped and... They're, they're kind of trying to trap him in and give him more of an answer or something, it sounded like. Yeah, and and in a, in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to ask why. Because it doesn't make sense to me that the English police would have any interest in... I mean, not that they wouldn't be interested if they knew about it, but, like, why are they... Why are they... What's the investigation? What's the motive of the investigation? Why are they, uh, if, if someone goes, you know, travels abroad, comes home with a daughter, comes back without a daughter, what triggers the British police to say, like, hey, we better send some men over there and find out what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think a clue to that, a possible clue to that, comes when the police leave, but one man stays behind. And this is Gibson. Uh, Gibson is an Englishman who reveals to Bob that he is, uh, what is he? Help me out. That, oh, yeah. Foreign, foreign office. He's, he's of foreign the foreign office. office. Yeah. And Which, that Louis Bernard was one of his agents. Right, right, right. And we mentioned the foreign office in the briefing. So Gibson definitely is keyed in that uh, something's wrong here. And he even seems to already know that there is an assassination plot, right? Uh, well, Gibson is from the foreign office, uh, and he kind of seems to know a lot more than the police do. Uh, and he kind of also lets uh, the Lawrences know that he knows their daughter's been kidnapped and that they're was a that Mr. Lawrence had found. And so he pretty much knows quite a bit of the situation other than what was written on the note. So he kind of uses this situation to leverage to try and gain the information about what's on the note. So well, actually, wrote, I, don't th I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think he knows that there's a note. I think he just knows that his, his uh, asset or, or 
you know, um, his coworker, the agent Louis Bernard, was killed in Switzerland, and right. the last the last people that were right with him and hanging out with him were the Lawrences. They've come back without a daughter, right? Yeah. He knew that there was an assassination plot. In fact, that's why they sent Louis Bernard to Switzerland to gather information about it. Right. So I guess the fact that they came back without a daughter has triggered his twitchy nose that that there might be something related there. I mean, he might be interested in chatting up with the last people that talked to Louis Bernard anyways. But, the, you know, and then when he looks into it and he notices there's a missing daughter involved, now he really wants to know what's going on, right? Well, yeah, so they basically, you know, it's, it's obvious Gibson knows quite a bit about the situation. He just wants to know the information that Mr. Lawrence has gained uh, and basically poses it as a matter of national security. But at this point, there's a phone call that comes in. Yeah, go ahead. Tell me about it. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah. So there's a phone call that comes in from the would-be, I guess, kidnappers, uh, and they know they know that Gibson's at their apartment, and they basically threaten Mr. Lawrence and Mrs. Lawrence to not say a word to Gibson, or their daughter will be killed. So they must have the Lawrences under surveillance, right? And and presumably. Gibson's being watched. If he's that high ranked in intelligence, somebody's watching him as well. Well, you can't watch uh, everyone. You, you can't watch everyone, right? But, you're but gonna, I guess you're gonna... I guess if you knew if you knew that I don't know if it's clear. I don't know if they state that Gibson is like Louis Bernard's boss. But I guess if the villains knew if that was the case, I guess maybe you would watch Louis Bernard's boss to see what how he reacts to the fact that you just offed his agent. Right, right, right. That's true. That's true. Um, but, uh, yeah, but the, the, the callers basically threaten uh, to harm Betty if they tell them anything about what was written on that note. So here's basically the situation is this couple's daughter has been kidnapped and they're being threatened with their daughter's life to not give up information. But British intelligence is claiming this is a matter of national security we can help you and we can help get your daughter back. And so they're kind of set up in this moral dilemma and we kind of have this interesting negotiation or back and forth with the Lawrences and Gibson trying to decide whether to pick national security over their daughter. And as we see, they pick their daughter and believe that they can handle their situation on their own. Um, yeah. And that's a, like, that's a formula that I think I, I, I mean, I don't know if this is the first movie to use this kind of plot. I kind of suspect it is, but it's definitely not the last. No. <laughs> Where, like, you know, a, a kidnapped loved one is is somehow, like, the, the reason that uh, an everyman, or in this case an every couple, yeah. uh, gets, gets kind of drawn into this world of foreign intrigue, blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah, and the whole, like, pathos of it is, you know... They, they want to protect their daughter. Yes. They don't want to be involved in this. And and they're scared. They don't really know what to do, but they're just going to have to figure it out somehow. Well, interesting enough is, you know, one of the things Gibson points out is that there was an assassination that was successful in the past that triggered World War One, And it was an assassination, a person that wasn't really 
that big of a deal that nobody knew and that this is a big deal and that they need to stop this assassination because it could trigger something as big as World War One. But, you know, it's as many stories have been told in this way, the, the, the parents of the child are like, yeah, but it's my child and that has to amount to something and my child is very important type of situation. Uh, right. So so the stakes are a lot bigger. You you mentioned national security a couple times, but the stakes are actually posed here by Gibson as being much larger than that. And let's remember, too, that in 1934, people are still pretty fucking shooken up of, about right. World War One. Like, World War One was awful. Right, right. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty bad. And, yeah, it was basically an assassination of somebody that wasn't even that big. Well, wasn't he an ambassador or something? His brother was actually, like, the emperor or whatever. He 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 actually wasn't even that big. I mean, like, yeah, he had political position, but it you're wasn't talking, like he was... You're, like, talking about, you're talking about Archduke Ferdinand. Yeah, Archduke the Ferdinand. He's, the target, Arch, he's an Archduke. The yeah, target man. of the assassination that... Uh, is said to have triggered led was the first domino in a series of dominoes that precipitated world war one. And yeah, like, like Gibson says, like, um, like nobody knew who that guy was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew what could possibly happen, uh, as a result of that. And so, you know, uh, Gibson doesn't want that to happen again. And he puts the stakes in Bob's face as being that high. Bob's still like, still got to go with my daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much, you know, which, I mean, it's pretty typical for, like, a movie, especially for, you know, the every man watching this movie want to feel like, yeah, we're going to take care of our kids type of situation. Sure. So here, I want to I wanna, uh, not forget to mention, like, I think a bit of tradecraft that I detect here. It's not explicitly stated in the movie, but I kind of sniff out. Remember, I was asking, like, why are the London police... Uh, asking about the whereabouts of the daughter. Here's my theory after I think about it for a while. We know that Gibson has noted the daughter's disappearance. I think that Gibson, being a clever spy, I'm going to give him credit for being a clever spy, he goes to the London police, he says, I need you guys to go over to the Lawrences and ask them about their daughter, and I'm going to come with you. So that at this point, He's thinking maybe he can get some information or some confirmation of his suspicions from the Lawrences without having to, like, step out of the shadows and reveal to them literally, like, hey, I'm a spy. Right, right. And, but, and, since, and that way he doesn't have to reveal too much information. Some some pretty uh, – get some spy points for that one. That's a really good point, Todd. I didn't even really pick up on that. I think that was good because I was the very first time I was watching the movie. I was like, well, of course, I'm watching the movie. I'm taking my notes and I'm asking questions like what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. And I remember the first thing I wrote down is why are the London police talking to Bob about this? I mean, it's it's it would be different if Bob and Jill came home and went to the police and said, hey. Somebody took our daughter. <laughs> but they didn't do that. So, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think Gibson was trying to pull the strings and he was trying to pull a fast one. But since Bob held firm in the face of the police investigation, now Gibson needs to actually play his card and right. or put his, put his cards on the table. Well, yeah, so the call comes in 
And uh, I, th- I think there's like a bit of a conversation that the phone companies will never tell you where the call comes from. Gibson then immediately picks up the phone, dials zero, presumably, and says, this is special. Uh, get me, what did, what did he say? He actually says, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, actually, I got the quote. Let me, let me lay it on you. Uh, I assume he dials zero. He dials a single digit. Remember, and this is the rotary phones, right? right? He doesn't like he doesn't he doesn't dial a phone number. So I'm presuming he dials zero. Or actually, I don't necessarily want to presume that because I don't want to say that I know how phones worked in London in 1934. Yeah. But it's a it's it's a rotary phone. So he dials zero or whatever the the British old timey version of that is, and yeah. he just speak he just speaks right into the phone and he says, "Give me special, please, quickly." This is G speaking. Code name. Yeah. Ha Tradecraft point. Plus one spy point. For yeah, being G. For being G. <laughs> Were you listening? Where yeah. did the last where did the last call come from? Which they probably pre-planned to start tapping because they were already aware of like this these events that kind of transpired in Switzerland. So they probably already pre-planned to kind of tap their incoming calls and outgoing calls. So Right, spy points right there. Yeah, because like at first, what I thought was, wouldn't it be cool if like you had a system in place where like you and you had a special code or something where you could just pick up any phone in the world where a call had just been made and like say the right magic words into it. Right, uh, right, and but that wouldn't make sense because that would like there's not somebody listening to every call that's going on everywhere. Right, exactly. So, So they must have had agents on the line like just basically listening to all the phone calls that are coming in or out uh-huh. and uh uh gibson can just pick it up and speak these magic words that gets him like he says give me special please right whatever, exactly whatever special <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's the code for the for the operator or whoever like uh you know maybe they have a person there that's like the agent is taking the place of the operator but uh, yeah, really cool. So so they they uh, they're watching the Lawrences, and like you mentioned too, like obviously the uh, the bad guys are also watching the Lawrences. Yes, they are. We're in yeah. a world we're in a world of shadows and and observation and surveillance, and and Lawrence is being watched all the time. Yep. <laughs> very cool. Very spy movie ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. <laughs> um. So uh. During the scene at the home, uh, we're introduced also to another character named Clive. I guess, I mean, he seems to be a family friend, maybe an uncle. He might be Bob's brother. I'm not sure. Well, they kind of made a joke that he's kind of an uncle. So he's probably a really good friend, but he he could actually be an uncle. Uh, It was was kind of weird who he was. We're we're not really sure kind of exactly what he was, but they kind of... They made, like, a joke about, like, well, yeah, you're pretty much an uncle at this point. Okay. okay. Um, right. So uh, Clive becomes uh, – Clive joins Bob in uh, tracking down the details in the note because somehow, like, the Lawrences have decided, like, they need to solve this mystery on their own without the help. So after Gibson leaves – or something, I forget exactly how it leaves, but one word or, or another, Clive joins Bob in – tracking down the details of the note and the note again started with oh wait 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 that's right remember uh back to the phone call right which was traced right. uh gibson 
all he was able to get was the 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 call came from a public phone somewhere in Wapping, a district in London. And he gives he gives orders, I think, right, to put uh, plainclothes men on every corner in Wapping. But yeah, call Scotland Yard, said man on every corner in Wapping. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, that that's why that freaks after Gibson leaves. That's what freaks Bob out, right? Um, yeah. He's thinking like, oh no. He apparently doesn't have much faith in the plain clothesness of <laughs> Scotland Yard. He yeah. thinks he thinks that the villains are gonna instantly notice that there's a cop on every corner, right? Uh, and and assume that that means that the Lawrences gave up the information to Gibson and killed their daughter. Right, right, right. And so being freaked out like that—that's why they think like we've got to go to Wapping right now and. I don't know what I don't exactly know what their plan is, but they're 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 the way they prosecute the plan is they're going to Wapping and they're going to try to find G Barbour, which they do. Right, they do. Yeah, uh, and G, G and I Barbour, think that's the dentist, right? That turns out to be a dentist uh, in the district of Wapping. Uh-huh. So definitely putting they're putting the right they're putting the right strings between the right tacks on their little figure it out board. Right. Um, they go to the dentist. They pretend. Uh, they pretend he's got something wrong with his mouth, so that the dentist just to get in there. Uh-huh. Um, and the dentist asks Bob some questions while he's in the chair. And Bob, I'm not sure why, but he lies about it in a way that makes the dentist suspicious enough to try to knock Bob out with his uh, creepy uh, sleeping gas, with his creepy dentist gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is honestly a pretty creepy scene, and I liked it a lot. It was um, very creepy. It had a very, very creepy feel to it. It was, you it know, was especially black, it was black and white. Black and white, kind of claustrophobic. Like, a lot of this film is very, like, I thought, um, very claustrophobic. Right. Uh, in a, in a lot of parts, um, you know, not so much the Switzerland parts, but but definitely like when we when we get into like the world of spies, it always seems to be in these like tight little closed rooms, and especially this one, the dentist office is like dark, and like just kind of, uh, I mean, it's not it's not well lit. the The dentist just has this one huge bright light, you know, that he's shining into the patient's um, face, and then. Mm-hmm leaves all these like really you know a bright light can leave a lot of like dark shadows all around yes but uh yeah but bob turns turns the table on the dentist and knocks him out with his own fucking sleeping gas yeah (laughs) and then and then he hears like there's someone coming in he's like oh shit and he does something really clever it's not really spycraft but it is pretty clever he quickly uh Flips the position, puts the dentist on the chair, puts on his dentist jacket, puts on his dentist glasses, shines the light at the door. Very clever, so that the yeah, person so they walk- won't see him as they walk in, right? Yeah, so it'll be they'll be harder to see, and uh, and just basically pretends to be the dentist, and um, the person that comes in, we see that it's Ramon, 
and we see that he's talking to Abbott. Remember Abbott? We still haven't mentioned that Abbott is played by Peter Lorre, which is, I mean, he's the best performance in the film, I think. I mean, this is a a great, this is great work by Peter Lorre. But uh, so now we as the audience, this is the first time we've realized there's a connection between Ramon, the sharpshooter from Switzerland, and Abbott, the little guy with the chiming watch. And Bob gets this information also because uh, Abbott's watch chimes and he hears it. And we he heard that exact same chime in Switzerland. That's right. And so he kind of put to piece together that it was that same guy that they had seen. And this is this is the meeting between Ramon and Abbott planning the assassination, correct? Um, they don't, I don't, they, they don't really plan it out. They, I think the, their discussion is, uh, Ramon's kind of bitching a little bit about like how he needed to be, uh, snuck into London. Uh-huh. And, uh, Abbott's just like, shut the fuck up. You'll do, you'll do whatever I say you need to do. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, I'll go ahead and give Abbott minus five spy points for owning a watch with a super um, you know uh, identifiable chime that just goes off at random times yeah <laughs> that's, I mean I think that's minus five spy points right? Definitely minus five spy points on that one <laughs> okay um, so uh, yeah and afterwards Clive and Bob uh, follow Abbott and Ramon as they leave the dentist cross the street and uh, go into a weird fucking church. Very weird. And it, and I think it's some kind of cult or something. It's definitely like some sort of uh, religious sanctioned center type of thing. So yeah, this uh, creepy cult church, it's um, they're some kind of sun worshippers with some kind of uh, I don't know, weird, weird rites. It's, it's, it's very culty. It's not, doesn't seem to be like a, a legit religion. Um, and, uh, Clive and Bob sneak in and there's a sermon being given. They kind of try to hide out in the back, but someone there seems to recognize that they don't belong there. And, um, well, I mean, just through some manipulation, they kind of, uh, well, basically, Clive gets hypnotized. I mean, they, they kind of say, like, if you're here for the first time, you need to do the, the thing. And so Clive gets kind of, I don't know, manipulated into submitting to hypnotism, and he gets knocked out. All the uh, Most of the church goers leave, and so now Bob's left alone in the church with just a handful of people, sinister people, and uh, and his friend is incapacitated, right? And this sets the stage for what, Dave? The greatest chair fight of all time. It is the greatest chair fight of all time. What? What? Why? Why do we have a chair fight here, Dave? Well, apparently they didn't want to use guns. Someone, guns someone pulled out a gun. Yeah, yeah. Someone pulled out a gun, but someone else is like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I think it was the head priestess lady that was running the sermon warns them, ah, don't use any guns, they'll hear it, and the police will show up. And I'm not, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So, so instead, 
they have to fight with these chairs. And I know, Todd, that you want to talk about this. I really do. I don't yeah. I don't remember I don't remember who throws the first chair. Now again, this chapel, it's it's a small place. Again, it's another kind of somewhat claustrophobic uh uh spot. It's not like a huge church. It's like uh I don't know, it's uh the size of like someone's large ish living room. Um and I, I everyone was sitting in these like flimsy little wooden folding chairs. I'm not even sure if they had folding chair technology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is pre-folding technology. <laughs> but there are these there's these light there are these light little wooden chairs, and I'm not sure who it is that throws the first one. But as soon as that first chair gets thrown, it is fucking on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone grabs a chair and just starts hurling it. Bob is throwing chairs at the bad guys. The bad guys are throwing chairs back at him. The chairs are splintering, like like into pieces, like as they're hitting each other. Like nobody's seems to be actually hurt. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's just kind of like a like a challenge or whatever, like a, it's almost a like friendly a match or whatever. It's almost like a food fight, but with chairs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, oh. but you know what they say in boondocks, anytime a chair gets thrown, that's just the end of it. And there's going to be a, there's going to be a fight. <laughs> they, they, they start throwing the mangled remnants of chairs back at each other when yeah, they run out of like, yeah. like, fully like built functional chairs we're not even at this point where they've broken all the chairs right and so they start sending out like the splintered pieces for whatever reason and they're just they're just like exchanging these like chair throws it is easily it is easily i'm not saying i mean i know we're hyping this up a bit but it is actually a kind of a cool scene it is one it is probably i think the 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 most memorable part of this movie absolutely that that and the fact that Peter Lorre fucking rocks. Yeah, he's he's definitely amazing. Bob keeps yelling at Clive to wake up, wake up, wake up, and he's still smoking. I love this. By the yeah. way, everyone Every, smokes in this movie constantly. Yeah. And, and a chair fight is not, I repeat, not an excuse to stop smoking your cigarette. <laughs> he's still got his cigarette in his mouth. I don't even remember him lighting the motherfucker. Wait a second. I just thought of this. He did he did not come into the church with a lit cigarette, did he? I don't know. All I know is is I don't think I've seen anybody light a cigarette in that movie. Everybody's just smoking. Oh All yeah. The no, they just have them. Yeah. It's just a part of life, you know? Yeah. Everybody smokes, you know? In the in the movie poster for this movie. The movie poster. Did you see? Did you see it? Yeah, it's this weird, like ghoulishly green artwork of Peter Lorre with like half lidded eyes, and you can see this weird scar on his head, yeah. and he's just he's just got this cigarette just dangling out of his like fat red lips. Yeah, and, yeah. And he's, he's just he just he just looks like he's just I don't know. He almost looks like he's like enjoying that cigarette like way too much. Yeah. <laughs> That was kind of a creepy poster. Yeah, but I think it's funny that just like somebody's smoking in every scene. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, let's go ahead and spoil it real quick. I I got to, like, since we're talking about the smoking right now, is Peter Lorre, at the end of this movie, he's going to get shot to death. He has to because he's the bad guy. Right. 
he's still smoking. <laughs> like he's he hides behind a door. The police have come in to the place. The jig is up. It's the end of the movie. His last stand, his last move is to hide behind a door and hope they don't notice him when they come in the room. Right. Does he put his cigarette out? No. Ah, nah. If I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die smoking. That's yeah. <laughs> that's Peter Laurie's thing. That's everyone's thing. Cigarettes oh, yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Okay. I'm jealous. Yeah, they were even smoking inside the chalet at Switzerland. They like oh, yeah. made sure to oh, start yeah. smoking before they went outside, just to make us extra jealous. But again, yeah, I just I just want to underline this again. Like, I don't remember him lighting the cigarette. I, I mean, maybe I'll go back and maybe I'll be wrong, but maybe he lights like we don't see it, but he lights the cigarette just before the chair fight starts. Yeah. <laughs> now maybe he lights the cigarette during the chair fight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Moving on. During the fight, during the fight, uh, Ramon comes in. Right now, Ramon again is our heavy. You know, like Abbott is our mastermind and Ramon is the heavy uh, in this movie. So he comes into the fight and he says, fuck this with the chairs. I'm going to go do a wrestling match with Bob. And so they start wrestling because I guess they're out of chairs. And while they're wrestling, Bob notices that Ramon's got a concert ticket sticking out of his pocket. And... uh the concert ticket says it probably I'll bet you it has because remember our note, the note that like is the the whole point or the impetus of this whole movie said March 21st. I'll bet you the the, the, the well, actually, isn't it already March 21st? All right. Never mind that. But he definitely sees that the concert ticket says Albert Hall. And he puts that together with the Louis Bernard note that said a hall. Right. So. Now, okay, he's still fighting, right? But I guess he's doing some processing, too. He's thinking... What is he thinking? What all information does he have? He knows that there is a note that was very important that said A-Hall. He knows there's an assassination plot. He knows that for some reason, some motherfucker that he only barely met in Switzerland last week is suddenly in a church with him plotting something with some other motherfucker that he just really only barely met in Switzerland. Right. So I guess he puts this all together in his head and says, uh, Albert Hall is, is really important. Maybe he even thinks, I don't know. No, he can't. I mean, he can't in the middle of a fight, even also being a ma making some kind of connection that like, Hey, this guy's a marksman. There's an assassination plot. Here's a concert, which matches a note that a Frenchman hid in a shaving brush. I don't know what all his thought process is, but somehow he manages to wake Clive up and, and help Clive Did get he out. throw a piece of the chair at Clive or something? I think so, yes. Yeah, a stray chair finally manages to actually impact on Clive, wakes him up. Bob gets Clive up through the window and I'm not sure the exact order of operations here, but Clive gets out the window. Bob does not. Bob gets captured. But Bob's final, like, um, bit of, you know, like, trying to get this movie to a positive conclusion, save his daughter, 
tells Clive to call to send Jill to the Albert Hall. Right, which I, it's kind of weird. You know, why send the wife? Why not just send Clive over to Albert Hall? I do, I do think that's a bit odd. Yeah, it's a, it's a little janky because I yeah. think the smart play is just like, don't call my wife, my grieving, prone to dizzy spells and fainting. <laughs> yeah, wife. Steady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, send Clive. Yeah. But anyways, we're gonna try to send Jill. Um, now I'll mention that uh, in the 1934 version, Bob, I, like I mentioned, he gets captured here. He really, I mean, he remains a captive for the rest of the film, and he really doesn't do much of anything else no. for the rest of the film. He does do one thing. He overhears once the, you know, once once he's like in their hands. Right. Um, Ramon is uh, uh, then. Abbott calls Ramon over to explain exactly how the assassination plot is going to work. And they seem to go, this is just a, a minus on, I think on the plausibility of the film. They seem to go to elaborate lengths to make sure that Bob overhears them. Uh-huh. I mean, they, they literally position him right in this one spot and then talk about it right in front of him. Yeah. There's some there's some minus spy points right there. There's some huge minus spy points, and it's also completely unnecessary because Bob doesn't actually like it's unnecessary even as a janky plot device because Bob doesn't actually do anything with that information. No, he doesn't. Yeah. So it was just to make sure that we, as the audience, understand the assassination plot, and the assassination plot basically it revolves around they're going to be at a concert. The French official's going to be there. There's a huge, like, climactic point in the music where there's going to be a massive cymbal crash, and that's when you do your shot, because that way no one will hear the shot. And then he could, the, our shooter could run away and into the night. Yep. Yep, pretty much. Um, I got to, I, I guess we're ready to head to the concert. I just got a little bit of trivia here which i thought was interesting in the original there's the remember like the the whole thing where clive gets hypnotized in the, yeah. ori in the original script it was going to be bob and jill <coughs> going to the church together right and it was going to be jill that was going to get hypnotized and she was going to get hypnotized and like uh engrammed or whatever into being the assassin oh that would have been a much better story I think it's a much better story. Yeah. Apparently, apparently in 1934, Alfred Hitchcock decided that 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 the, it would strain plausibility and the audience wouldn't go for it. Right, which is kind of confusing because there were a lot of movies at that time that used hypnosis in that way. And uh, later, I think there's some conspiracy theories about the MK Ultra program being able to actually accomplish that with would-be assassins. Um, but uh, a lot of those movies back then in the black and whites, they, there was all kinds of weird hypnosis situations. But they made hypnosis look way more overpowered than it actually is. Uh huh. Yeah, but I think that would have made for a much better story. But now we have a thriller of trying to stop the wife who's hypnotized and get her out of legal trouble. Oh and yeah, it becomes it becomes a, a spy thriller. It becomes know? much worse too. Like now. Bob has lost his daughter and his wife. Right. 
then he would really feel isolated. It feels like the clamps would really be on him. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I wish they had stuck with that, too. That's definitely the way they would do it if, if they remade this movie again. <laughs> oh, I, for I, sure. I, I think, yeah, I think that if they remade this movie for some reason in 2020, I mean, a lot would change. But I definitely think that that, that something, well, maybe not. Maybe we're kind of over hypnosis now in the modern day. Well, no, but like I was saying, there's a bunch of conspiracy theories that the MK Ultra program had combined hypnosis with Pavlov's law, and there are some people who believed uh, some of the mass shooters or actually people that assassinated people were we were had gone through exactly what we just that scenario we just discussed. Like some people believe the man that murdered John Lennon was uh, was was. Uh, possibly under some sort of mind control type of situation. Wow, I've never heard that. Yeah, like, uh, supposedly, the, the assassin just read Catcher in the Rye, and for those of you that have read Catcher in the Rye, you know the whole point of the book is that everybody's fake. So he finishes reading this book and goes, everybody's fake. The Beatles are fake. John Lennon's fake. I need to go kill John Lennon. You know, like, these, these are supposedly the steps that he took. So a lot of it seems kind of weird, but I mean, he could have just been, you know, ill, mentally ill, like that, that they claim, but supposedly he doesn't remember ever. Anyway, this is getting way too much in that conspiracy theory. No, that's cool, though. That's cool, though. I, I, I enjoyed that. I, I'd never heard about that stuff. But uh, yeah, we could head to the concert. Okay, sounds good. I think we covered the church pretty well. Jill gets sent by Clive to the hall. It's weird here, like, she doesn't actually know anything at this point, right? Like, okay, we know what's going to happen. Or we, we, like, we've seen the movie. We know that what's going to happen is that she's going to go to the hall. She's going to notice a gun muzzle behind a curtain up in a balcony. Right. Slowly aiming toward the target of the assassination, she looks up, she looks back, she kind of figures out, like, who is going to get shot. I'm not sure she was actually in the room when Gibson described the implications of the assassination. I'm not even sure she knows there's an assassination. Like, that she comes into the hall thinking about an assassination in her head. But she just knows that, for some reason, her husband said, get there now. Right. she pieces things together, the music swells, it gets a little more intense, it gets more intense. I mean, it's supposedly like a, a wonderful set piece of this film. We are going to later talk about how much how much better the 1956 version is of this yeah. scene. But I guess in 1934, this is a this is a people look at it, film 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 goers see it and they think this is a fucking great scene. Alfred Hitchcock, he's done it again. Yeah. Um but the music swells, and just before the symbols are about to clash, remember she doesn't know about the symbols. But I guess her just her hunch or her tension like builds up so much that she can't help it. She can't hold it in anymore, and she screams right before the symbols clash, and right when before the music the... kind of drops. So she, I guess, she's a little bit more amplified. Right, right, right. I mean, th there's definitely, like, emotion 
built up in this scene. She's yeah. terrified of what's going on. She doesn't know like where her husband's gone off to. Uh, I don't think Clive gave her a bunch of information except like get to Albert Hall right away. Um, she's 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 worried about her daughter. The music is like is like kind of being a a surrogate for us as the audience of the the immense anxiety that she has and yeah. at that moment where the music suddenly pauses as it's been building up building up she can't hold it in anymore and she just releases it in a scream which is enough to throw the assassin's bullet off and so i think now i i remember in the 56 version not so sure in the 34 version but i think the um the french dignitary is just flesh wounded Instead of being yeah, killed. it's just a flesh wound, which apparently is a British thing because they, that I was like, ah, oh, Monty Python, but you know they they just kept saying flesh wound at the end of the movie, so I think I think that's like a British thing. Uh, no, that's just a regular thing, but Monty Python did very much popularize. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I I've just never heard it outside of Monty Python, like. You know, you we you here we usually hear like grazing or something like that, uh, but yeah, but in this movie they're like, oh, it was just a flesh wound. Like, so wonder I wonder if that's why my Monty Python made a joke about it. It might be like a thing of it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. Trivia that uh, the the piece of music that's used here it's I think it's called the Storm Cloud Cantata. And it was specially, uh, what do you, what's the word for it? Um, what's the word for it when you when you hire someone to produce? Well, anyways, Alfred Hitchcock composed. Alfred Hitchcock score. hired a composer specifically to write this piece of music for this movie. Right. And it's also it's the same piece of music that's used in the '56 version. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to that. Right. Um, and then, uh, so, the assassination plot's been foiled. Bob's still a captive. Right. We move on to our finale. Our finale is basically the cops rushing the, the church, where the, the villains, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but their, their whole headquarters is in, like, the upstairs of the church. Right, yeah. And, um... The cops come out of the woodwork. Somehow they've figured out uh, that this is where the villains are. I couldn't exactly figure out how they figured that out. Well, yeah. Well, uh, uh, Mrs. Lawrence spotted Ramon running out and jumping into a car and alerted the police or the security at the concert hall. So I, ah. I followed him to the church. Why he would go That's there. That's a dumb move. Minus 10 spy points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Minus 10 spy points for Ramon. Yeah. Yeah. You don't go back to the Yeah, no, 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 no. You burn it. You burn it all. You disappear. Yeah. yeah. You catch yeah. a bus. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you jump into your... a bush somewhere, you know. You get your payment later. Yeah. <laughs> a big gunfight ensues. Uh I don't know if no, I guess we didn't mention well. Uh, we might have glossed over it a little, but you know, at at remember there are like a certain number of bad guys that stuck around in the church, um, yeah. right? Like well, like something. There's a total of like maybe seven bad guys hanging out with Abbott in the upstairs of the church at this point. They've all got guns. 
the police show up with guns. They start shooting through windows. It's a big, huge gunfight. Apparently, it's uh, it's all like based on. You remember Heat? You remember the movie Heat? Uh, I remember its existence. Oh, I don't think I've seen it since I was like six or something. Do you? Oh, really? Wow. We yeah, gotta talk. Cool. We gotta talk about that movie, even if we don't do it in a podcast, which I would love to do, by the way. Yeah. But uh, oh, you need to see that movie again. It's one of my favorites of all time. There's a huge gunfight between bank robbers and the LAPD um, in Heat, which was based on like uh, an actual incident. Oh, really? Yeah, it was an actual incident where the cops were so like the the bank robbers had shown up with fucking, like, assault weapons. And the cops were, apparently at this time, like, the cops didn't run around with assault weapons. Like, right now... Is this I don't know the if... Hollywood shootout? It very well might be. Okay. Because that sounds just like the North Hollywood shootout. Right. Okay. I don't know if you've noticed, but right now, like, you, like, motorcycle cops in L.A. are rolling around with fucking assault weapons, like, yes. lashed, lashed to their bikes. Yep. They have, they have M4s on the back of their bike or AR-15s sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's different. I always that's always what I check is like what kind of weapon is this cop got? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because I, I don't know. I, I I would not. I don't. I don't. I don't love cops, but I do love cop motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> def, like don't don't let the fact. Please don't let the fact that I love Nazi motorcycles. Right. Like, indicate to you that I, you know, have any sympathy whatsoever for Nazis. But, I mean, come on. Their motorcycles are fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways. Sidecar. <laughs> at, that, at that time, I know that we're, I, I don't mind that this is a segue because it's fun for me. Yeah. Um, but at that, at that time, the, the L.A. cops didn't, weren't rolling around with assault weapons. So, they had to go to gun stores. They had to go to local gun stores. And what do you call it when you, uh. Not confiscate, not commission, but what do you what do you do when you're the uh, commandeer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They commandeered. Well, the other thing is British local police gun stores. British police have never really carried firearms. Like these are your kind of like street bobbies or whatever. Ever? No, it wasn't until recently. I think within the last like fifteen years, and this is hilarious because this this goes against all the gun control advocates. The, the gun violence in England got so much of a problem, the police had to actually be armed for the first time in, like, the existence of England. Okay. The, the police have never been armed. So they had to go in this movie. There, It's just a bunch of, like, you know, street cops or, like, Bobby-type guys from Scotland Yard, and they're getting shot at. So they had to go to a local gun store to yeah, get, like... They, like, the head cop, he has, he has to give orders... Like right. he has to make a like a special decision and send someone like, hey, you need to go to the gun store. We like and get a bunch of rifles for our right. cops for this right. fight. Exactly. So in in that way, it was like that's why I brought up the heat situation because like it 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 was like this kind of the same thing. But um, apparently this gunfight. So this is another. It's like a parallel of a parallel, because the scene in Heat was based on a real event. This scene in this movie is also based on a real event, on a real cop shootout that uh, happened in Alfred Hitchcock's neighborhood when he was a child. Oh, wow. Cool, huh? Very cool. 
but other than that, I mean, it's uh, you know, there's this is a podcast about spy stuff. There's really no spy stuff left in this movie. Uh, we just end it with a standard shootout. Uh, the bad guys drop one by one. They take out some cops. Um, oh, there's a, I mean, there's a okay. There's but there is like one little piece again, not spy stuff. But we got to mention that uh, Ramon uh, takes Betty, the girl up to the top of the church, up to the, like, the roof of the church. In classic villain fashion, when a villain is on the ropes, he always has a natural instinct to find height. It's just, like, it's just, like, instinctual. It's like, uh, it's like when a cat is pregnant and she knows that She's going to give birth soon. Like she hides in a corner. She finds a secret place in a corner. It's instinctual for a villain in a movie. When the chips are down, you need to get up to a high place. It's just a fucking rule. But in this case, he's miscalculated because Jill is with the police and there are rifles around. And Jill is a fucking marksman, which has been established at the very beginning of the movie. And the cops are like the the guy the the head cop or something gives the cop with the rifle. He says like shoot that guy, shoot him. And the guy looks <laughs> through the sights and says I can't, I can't. I might hit the girl. Jill says I got this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she takes the rifle from the cop. She shoots Ramon. It is so uncharacteristic when we think about like even now we're talking about like the um empowerment uh of of women in popular culture like popular media you know like what they do in tvs and movies and i think it's 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 improving at a good clip like you know i'm 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 really happy to see like uh you know movies like mission impossible uh, i think it was i think it was rogue nation was was my favorite one. The chicken that was a badass. I love seeing the fact that Charlie's Theron in the most recent Mad Max movie, total badass. I love movies like Atomic Blonde. I love you know this about me. I love kick ass chicks. Yeah. This is nineteen nineteen thirty four and she totally gets the moment. The the lady gets the moment of the most badassery. Her husband just gets shot in the back and just manages to survive. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. It's worth noting. It's worth noting. But, um, yeah, and that's how 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much ends. And, and, and Ramon was the one she was in the shooting contest with. And she vowed to, like, you know, beat him one day in competition. And he says, uh, I live for that day. I'll tell you exactly, exactly. We will, we will have another contest. And he says, I will live for that day. Good catch, because what he didn't know he was really saying is, "I will live until that day." <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and and she definitely gets her uh, payback, you know. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, I, I think that was very cute. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're gonna do here is we're gonna rate the movie. We're gonna give one to five stars. We're each gonna give our own individual rating and reasons for those ratings. Um, I, and I think Dave feels the same way, we're not trying to be full-on movie critics here. We're not trying to be Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. Yep, I have had a few beers. We're not trying to be Roger Ebert 
or Roger Tabor. <laughs> but we're going to give you our one to five stars on just how much we personally like this movie. So the 34, as far as the trade craft, was a little bit more tight knit. Uh, but I kind of felt like the production value or the story was kind of choppy. Uh, even though there's these phenomenal moments in the movie, I wasn't blown away with it too much. Uh, I think the the cinematography, or I guess the direction, was visually, I think it was better than the 56. But in general, uh, you know, it, it it felt like one of those old movies where it was just like, here's the story, credits roll, and everybody goes home happy. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one three stars for the 34. But as a movie perspective, I think the Spycraft was better in the 34 than in the 56. All right, cool. Um, you know, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, I liked the 1934, The Man Who Knew Too Much. I will, I, I, one thing that uh, factors into my personal rating is like, do I want to see this movie again? And I think I do. I don't need to see it again, like like right away. But uh, it's it's, I think it's rewatchable, and I think it's majorly rewatchable because of Peter Lorre. Yeah, absolutely. And because I just I I really do, I I like the chair fight. <laughs> yeah, the chair fight. <laughs> it's the chair it's, fight alone. It makes it rewatchable. It's memorable. No, no, and the bar, the dentist scene. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was pretty good. So, like, I mean, it's it's not a movie I'm gravitating toward, like, as as one of my favorites or something. But if I'm gonna sit down and watch an old movie, and I do like watching myself some old movies, yeah. If I if I rated like the top five cable channels of all time, I've never been much of a TV watcher. I watch very little TV. But there are some channels. I've, you know, the Cartoon Network brought me a lot of good stuff. Comedy Central brought me a lot of good stuff. You know, another channel that I've just always really held dear to my heart, Turner Classics. Yeah. You know, you just sit down, you watch these black and whites, and you really see, like, what movie making was like in the age before special effects. Right. In the age before... Uh, really advanced cinematography mm-hmm. and like there's so much of it that's so much more tied into character development because that's really the only thing they have to work with right well a lot of movies back then were just adapted from plays sure 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 oh yeah yeah um i'm gonna i'm gonna give uh i'm gonna go two and a half Two and a half. All right. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go two and a half. It's it's rewatchable. It's it's worthy if you are looking for an old timey black and white movie to watch. Mm-hmm. This 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 should be on your list. That if you're not in timey feel, you know. If if you're not into it, like you know, take a pass. Yeah. Now, so we have the Everyman as a spy. We still haven't seen a film with a spy hero. And in our research, Dave, I was so surprised. I really was super surprised. I don't think he really shows up until James Bond. Until James Bond. 
62. Wow. I mean, it 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 kind of boggles my mind a little. Like, like, I I I mean, I I I gotta jump into this here. Like Louis Bernard, who I mean, he dies within. I I didn't check, but I think he's dead within six minutes of the <laughs> fucking nineteen thirty four film. Right. But we have a British secret agent posing as a champion skier, globetrotting, right? Yeah. Uh, gathering secret information about enemy plots that have, like, huge, uh, like, world-shaking implications if the plots go through. He's dancing with 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 other people's wives yeah. <laughs> in a tuxedo. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't see him drink a martini, but this, I mean, this motherfucker is like one mart and and getting shot at too by, yeah, by yeah, yeah. enemy spies. This guy is one martini and one fucking like watch gadget away from being James Bond. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with you. You have all the elements in yeah. 1934. Oh, and by the way, apparently the guy that played Louis Bernard in the 1934 version, like totally famous actor. Like he oh. was, yeah, he was a totally like a guy that um, at the time, like women were like, you know, their hearts were throbbing over. Uh, like, okay. like okay. you know, he was like a badass hunk. Uh. So, so he's got everything. It takes the world, or or the world of cinema. You know, like it's it's weird. Like, uh, film was invented in like I don't I don't know these these numbers or these years, but like movies were being made for like decades before the close up was fucking invented. Yeah, <laughs> and it changed everything. And it's so weird. Like you could have all the elements of like this this guy should be our hero. Yeah. But as we're going to see uh, in later episodes, it takes 28 years for this to occur. And uh, that's going to be uh, a focus, I think, of our, our next series uh, where we talk about James Bond and how he fits in on that. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You know, find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.